Well, good morning, church, both those who are gathered here in our building this morning and those who are gathered at home. Um, we are so thankful for each and every one of you um, that you are spending this morning with us. Um, I am uh, grateful to get to preach this morning and look forward to that time. And as Kyle said, we hope that you had um, a blessed Thanksgiving on this whole week. I hope there were multiple things that came to your mind to be thankful to our God for. Um, but as we kind of transition out of that season um, of Thanksgiving, the, the holiday, um, let's not leave Thanksgiving behind. Um, that should be a posture and a, a prevalent thing in the lives of Christians always. Um, and I think especially in this season that we're now today entering into, the season of Advent, the coming of the greatest gift ever given the gift of God himself to humanity. Um, there is so much for us to be thankful for this time. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, I think, said it best when he said, so long as we are receivers of mercy, we ought to be givers of thanks. Um, we are every moment of every day receivers of God's mercy, and so therefore we must be givers of thanks, especially as we consider um, our text today, and as we consider this season of Advent. And so as we, um, as you go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, we're going to walk through um, Luke's chapters 1 and 2 over these next four weeks of Advent. Um, and, and today we're going to be beginning in verse 26. But to kind of set the stage real, real quickly, um, Luke is, again, he is this, if you will, an investigative reporter, and he is reporting to a man of probably some great authority named Theophilus. And Luke says in verse 4 of, of chapter 1, he says, he writes these things, he's compiled all these things, he's investigated all these things, so that Theophilus may have certainty concerning the things that he has been taught. So Luke isn't interested in fairy tales or myths or legends about the person and work of Jesus. He's only interested in the facts, just the facts. And so when we read these things, miraculous as they are, extraordinary as they are, we, under, we have to understand that Luke is presenting this from a point of true historical fact. And that's pretty amazing considering the claims, even in the text that we're going to look at today. So, Right before this, again, we're not going to begin at the very beginning of Luke's gospel. Right before this, to set the stage a little bit more, um, Luke begins actually with the pronouncement of uh, the birth of John the Baptist to his father, Zechariah, who's a priest ministering in Jerusalem at the temple. And before this, leading up to this, he says um, that Zechariah, his wife Elizabeth, who has been barren, will conceive and bear a son. He will be blessed, that he will be a prophet of the Most High God. And Zechariah doesn't exactly think this is a possibility. And he ends up getting the mute button pressed on it, if you know the story. Uh, he's like, you're not going to speak until um, she has birth, but you're going to see that this is the true word of God. Um, and Zechariah can't speak, but Elizabeth does conceive. And so that sets the stage. And when it, we begin in verse 26 of Luke chapter 1, it says, in the sixth month, that is specifically talking about the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So it is marked by that day that the angel comes, conception of John the Baptist happens, and then we pick up in verse 26, reading, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. 
And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, even in a familiar text to many of us, God, I pray that you would bring to the surface of this text truth that is transformative to our lives today and in the days that follow. God, in these next moments, God, would you reveal a greater revelation of who you are to us that transforms how we live. God, we ask you these things and we thank you for what you're going to do. And these things I pray in your name. Amen. Now, like I just pray, this is a familiar text probably to a lot of us. Um, if you are familiar with the Christmas story in Luke, you've probably read these. If you were like me growing up, um, these were some of the verses that were read either Christmas Eve or Christmas morning before any of the presents could be opened when you're a kid. You had to read these verses along with some of the other ones in Luke 1 and especially in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. So these are familiar verses. But before any of you at home or here with us today tune out and just assume, okay, well, you know, I know these, I know what's going to be said, all these things. Um, I don't have anything new to offer, um, but I hope that as we try to excavate some of God's word today and bring out the truth in it, that you will see something that is absolute mystery. I think there's two specific things. One is obvious. It's the one that we talk about at Christmas time. It's the incarnation, God becoming a human born of a virgin, which we're going to look at all that in in great detail today. But more specifically, there's another mystery that is here, and it's going to be the main focus of our text today. It's the mystery of the Holy Trinity, that in these verses that we've just read, we see the work of the triune God for his glory and for the good of his people. And this is a mystery that should never become secondhand or old hat to us. It should never become so familiar that we cease to stand in awe of it. For it truly is wondrous and amazing, a mystery. Wayne Grudem in his um, massive work, Systematic Theology, I mean, it's a brick of work that he has done. He says this about the Trinity in summary. He says it's it's summarized in three points, right? Um, He says, one, God is three persons. Two, each person is fully God. And three, There is one God. Everybody got it, right? Simple, right? 
that, there's the Trinity in a nutshell right there for you. We can, we can close the Bible and go home today. It, it's, it's so much more complex than that. But these three truths are taught unanimously throughout Scripture. It, it doesn't waver on these things. It doesn't apologize for these things. It presents them as truth, and so does Luke in his report to Theophilus and to us and to all of his readers. Obviously, this sermon's not going to be a theological treatise um, that, that teaches you everything you need to know about the Trinity. Um, I, I do not set out to do that. Um, my small little mind is incapable of doing so. However, my goal for us today is that we consider this mystery, that we consider how in Luke 1, 26 to 38, we see that the triune God is at work in his creation to bring about his glory and the good of his people. That is what I hope we can see today as we examine these verses. And so we first see this in these verses when we look to the favor and the faithfulness of the Father. The favor and faithfulness of the Father. These two doctrines, favor and faithfulness of God, are both inseparable and they are undeniable in Scripture. God's favor is what we would call his grace, naturally. That's what we normally refer to it as, his unmerited favor. It is something that cannot be earned, um, we cannot be good enough for it, but God gives it freely of his own choosing to us. He did it to Abraham. In Genesis 12, 1 to 3, we see Abraham is called from his homeland. And the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham didn't ask for this. <laughs> he didn't seek out God. As, as Keith Q preached um, some years ago when we preached through the book of Genesis, he said, what was it about Abraham? He was a moon-worshiping pagan along with his brothers and his family. But God chose him in his favor out of those people to form a new people. And we see it continue down the line. We see God choosing Isaac, the, the child of promise, the child of laughter. We see him choosing Jacob. We see him choosing King David. We see him choosing King Solomon. We see the favor of God on the lives of his people throughout the time. Not because they earned it, but because God in his sovereign grace chose to give it. And here in this text, we see Mary is referred to as the favored one. She has found favor with God. But again, Mary had done nothing really um, to earn this favor from God. Um, she had received it as an unmerited gift. Now, of course, we can say Mary, well, of course, Mary had prerequisites to do what she was going to do, right? We understand that she had to be a virgin. We're going to examine how she needed to come from Nazareth specifically, and that she needed to be betrothed to a man who was of the lineage of David. Those were prerequisites. But God also is sovereign in this. He is sovereignly overseeing every aspect and orchestrating every aspect of Mary's life up to this point and throughout his life as he does with each and every one of us. And in his favor, he would work in her and through her the greatest gift of grace and favor that has ever been given to humanity. A father chose Mary to bear his son, the savior of the world, the king of the whole universe. But along with God's favor, something that we can see in Scripture is that his favor is never detached from his faithfulness. God's favor and his faithfulness are always found 
together. And God always, always preserves what he promises. Every single time we can trace this through Scripture, we see how God actually presents evidence of this in the things that the angel says to Mary. Um, He presents it first in the fact that we see that he has been faithful to her relative, her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth, we don't, we don't know um, how long um, she had been barren, but we're told in verse 18, um, Zechariah talks about him being an old man, and he, he avoids calling his wife old. I think that was wise on his part. And he says, my wife is advanced in years. Isn't that sweet of him? Um, she's advanced in years. <laughs> um, and so we see in here, we don't know how long they had prayed for a child. We don't know how long they had begged the Lord, give, would you give us a child? But we do know, because of Luke 1.13, the angel said, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. This is the word of faithfulness to Elizabeth and to Zechariah directly from the Lord. And the and angel Gabriel points it out to Mary. He's like, look, even your cousin, who is called barren, is now six months pregnant. For nothing will be impossible with God. And in doing that, God not only brings to mind the fact that Elizabeth is the barren one who is now expecting, but it, brings, it should bring to mind for a devout Jew, as we can assume Mary was, Sarah, the barren one who fathered Isaac. Rebecca, the barren one who bore Jacob and Esau. Rachel, the barren one, who bore Joseph and Benjamin. Samoa, I'm sorry, Manoah, <laughs> a little different there. Manoah, the, father, the mother of Samson. Hannah, the mother of Samuel. All barren, but who God in his sovereign favor and faithfulness opened their wombs and brought forth sons. God's faithfulness to these women, including Elizabeth, were evidence of God's faithfulness and assurance that nothing will be impossible with God. And this is the message of assurance that is given to Mary here in these. But not only that, we see also the evidence of God's faithfulness to the house of David. Um, this is first hinted at in, um, the, in verse 26, where the angel Gabriel, it says, was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now again, For a Jewish reader, this would almost very likely, if they were devout in the scriptures, bring to mind Isaiah 9. It's probably one of the the only places that Galilee is mentioned in the Old Testament. But Galilee is specifically mentioned by name in Isaiah 9.1. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. See, Zebulun and Naphtali in the days of Isaiah are right about the area where Nazareth is in the days of Mary. Seven to eight hundred years previously, God had spoken of this specific area. And again, it was a place where in John, it said, the, the question is asked, can, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And yet in this specific place, God had the plan for the only thing good in humanity to come. 
But not only that is, is evident of this, but it goes further in the evidence of how this is faithfulness to David. Isaiah 9 is a messianic prophecy. It's not just about Galilee. It's not just about this, this little isolated place that would have no one thought much of. Isaiah 9, 7 says this. It says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Speaking of the Messiah, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, the, the, the interesting thing about that is when this was written by Isaiah, it says here that from this time forth and forevermore. Well, there's a problem there because at this point, there's really not a very clear evidence of a ruling king in the land of Judah or in the land of Israel. Yes, there's a line there, but certainly not one who is upholding it with faithfulness. Certainly not one who is upholding it with justice and righteousness and has any indication that he will establish it forevermore. It's not the case. It's a time of uncertainty. It's a time of great um, injustice, great corruption. But one was promised who would accomplish this. Joseph, to whom Mary is betrothed, not only lived in Nazareth, but again, he was of the house of David. But wait, there's more. Luke 1, 32 through 33 says, He will be great, speaking of this son, he will be called the son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forevermore, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Sounds a lot like Isaiah 9, 7, doesn't it? But it's actually also words directly out of the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7, 16 says, And your house and your kingdom, the Lord says to David, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God the Father would be faithful to fulfill his promise that he had made centuries before to King David. And he would do so exactly where and how he said he would do it. But we see a third way that we see faith, the faithfulness of the Father in this text very quickly. It's the faithfulness to save his people. In this, um, throughout Scripture, God's faithfulness is directly tied to salvation. We see the psalmists write of it. We see the prophets proclaim it um, to remind Israel that God had called them out of Egypt to save them and to deliver them into the promised land. But this was all foreshadowing the ultimate salvation that God would bring that through this son that would be born of the Virgin Mary. And we see it here, we see an indication of it in one single word. It's a name. Because in the name of Jesus it is a name so profound, so glorious, so beautiful, that it's all that's necessary to communicate the fullness of God's eternal salvation. See, the English name Jesus comes from the Greek word Jesus. Um, and that comes from a Hebrew word, um, Yeshua, which literally means salvation. Yeshua. Mary is literally told by the angel that she is going to give birth to a son, miraculously, as a virgin, and that his name will be salvation. This is the promised one. Yes, without a doubt, 
Israel had longed for a Messiah who would come and deliver them physically and save them and establish his kingdom. And it was assumed that his kingdom would be established just because his line would not be broken by his sons afterwards. But this would be a king who would never die. He would be a king that he reigned on the throne forever. And Matthew's um, account of, of the appearing of, Joseph, of the angel to Joseph, this makes clear that he says to Joseph um, that you will name this child Jesus. Mary will bear a son. You will name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Yeshua. This centuries longing, and in a very dark time when there had been no prophetic word from God for almost 500 years, the word comes to a little virgin in Nazareth. Salvation is coming through you. Faithfulness of God to save his people. So we see the, the work of the first person of the Trinity in this, that the Father, in his sovereign favor, chose Mary to bear his son. And through this act of favor, he would bring about salvation for his people. And simultaneously, he would prove his faithfulness to his word by assuring Mary of this same faithfulness, that he would be faithful to her in his plans for her. Not only do we see the favor and faithfulness of the Father at work in, in these verses, we also see, secondly, the presence and the power of the paraclete. Um, when Mary responds to Gabriel in verse 34, wondering how such a thing could be possible since she is a virgin, the angel responds, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The power of the Holy Spirit would miraculously work to bring about the conception of God's Son. And you may be wondering, why, why do you have to use the weird, the weird word? Well, in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, the word paraclete is from the Greek parakletos that Jesus uses to refer to the one who is the helper, the advocate. The Holy Spirit would be the one who would, yes, come one day at Pentecost, but he was the one who was going to be present here, working his power to conceive this son in Mary, and he would be her helper. There are going to be dark days ahead for her. And we'll get to that momentarily. But as we think about this, <laughs> the presence of the Holy Spirit is with Mary in this truly one-of-a-kind presence, or one-of-a-kind pregnancies. His power works in it and through her. I think too often, especially in, in the Baptist world, um, we fail to consider the person of the Holy Spirit and the work that he has been about for the ages. Uh, it's, it's not something that happened again at the coming of the Holy Spirit in the upper room when Jesus breathes on his disciples and tells them to receive the Holy Spirit. It's not the coming of Pentecost when the flames of fire descended on the heads of the apostles and they spoke in languages that everyone was able to hear in their native tongue. This is the spirit, the third person oftentimes referred to of the Trinity, who's been at work since before creation. He was hovering, the Bible tells us, over the face of the waters, but when the earth was still formless. He was present with Joseph to give him interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams. He's the one who emboldened the stuttering Moses to stand before Pharaoh. He's the one who gave Bezalel an artist, the artistic ability necessary to build the Lord's tabernacle. He is the one who gave wisdom and prophetic abilities to the 70 elders who would assist Moses in Numbers chapter 11. He is the one who came upon the judges 
to govern Israel before there was a king. He's the one who rushed upon David in 1 Samuel 16, remaining on him from that day forward until the death of David. He is the one who empowered the words of the prophets to warn the people of God. And he's the one who would rest on John the Baptist and even on Jesus himself as Isaiah had prophesied. He is truly the helper of God's people to us today as, as throughout the centuries. He's enabling and empowering God's people to do what on their own would simply be impossible, yet through his power and presence is fully possible. The work of the paraclete did not begin at Pentecost, for he was there before creation. He was there in the incarnation. We must not fail to see this. But thirdly, in our outline today, not only do we see the favor and faithfulness of the Father, not only do we see the presence and the power of the paraclete, we also see the supremacy and the sanctity of the Son. And of course, this is the place where we would most think about focusing our time when we consider the incarnation of what happened with the coming of the Son. Um, But as we consider the fact that Jesus is truly the reason for the season, I think it's, again, easy for us to become overly familiar with the idea and miss out on truly how supreme and sanctified, in the very sense of the word, of holy and set apart, Jesus is. See, when we consider Verses 31 and 33 here, the supremacy of Jesus should be unmistakably clear to us, and it should cause us to stand in awe. We read in verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Salvation, Jesus, Yeshua. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The verses here make it clear that this son obviously is a king. (laughs) That's undeniable. He is going to be a king in the line somehow of David. Uh, But like the previous kings of Israel, um, he would be called the son of the Most High. That was a common term given to the names of the kings of Israel. But unlike those kings, he would be God in the flesh, born in an entirely different way than the rest of those kings. The Lord would give to him the throne of his father David. But as Psalm 110.1 states, and as Jesus exegetes for the Pharisees, he would be the Lord who is greater than his father David because he has existed before David and, and always. It says he will reign over the house of Jacob, meaning he will unite all the people of God. But unlike David and Solomon who ruled over the united kingdoms, Jesus would reign forever for there will be no end to his kingdom. In other words, Jesus didn't come to continue David's kingdom. Jesus came to complete David's kingdom. The Lord of the Rings (laughs) is um, my favorite trilogy. Um, It's my favorite movies. Um, And there's a scene there that happens in the Fellowship of the Ring, the first movie, where they're gathered together as a council at Rivendell, and they have discovered the Ring of Power, this great weapon of the, of the Lord Sauron, the Dark Lord, who is the enemy of all the free peoples of Middle-earth. They're discussing, what shall we do with this ring now that it has surfaced? Um, and one of the men who's there, his name is, is he goes by the name Strider. Um, he speaks up um, and says, you can't wield it. None of us can. Uh, it, it answers to Sauron alone. and has no other master. 
and Boromir, who'd been the one who was like, let's take it, let's use it against the enemy, let's turn it on him. He snidely looks over at Strider and says, and what would a mere ranger know of this? And Legolas, the elf, stands up to his feet and says, this is no mere ranger. He is Aragorn, son of Arathorn. You owe him your allegiance. The child in our verses today is no mere baby. He is Yeshua, son of Yahweh. And every human throughout history owes him our allegiance. He is the promised one, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. David was merely a steward of the throne. Jesus is the rightful king. The one of whom Colossians 1, 15 through 18 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This is the promised one. And yet, by the whole counsel of Scripture, we know he is far more than just a king of the universe. He is the true prophet as well. For though the prophets delivered the virgin word, the pure word of God, Jesus is the word of God, and he was delivered by a virgin. He is the true and great high priest. For though Aaron made atonement for the people with the blood of goats and lambs and interceded to God on their behalf, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world by making atonement with his own precious blood and whoever lives to intercede for his people at the right hand of the Father. He is prophet. He is priest. He is king. He is the true and greater bread from heaven who does not merely sustain in a temporary physical way, but in an eternal way that is both spiritual and physical. He is the light of the world that the darkness cannot overcome. He is the door to the sheep that they may come in and find rest and salvation. He is the resurrection and the life so that though those who believe in him may die, yet shall they live. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and leads them into eternal green pastures. He is the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And he is the true vine, one who enables those who are attached to him by faith to bear fruit that lasts eternally in his kingdom. Jesus is supreme. He is greater than your greatest thoughts of him. But not only do we see that he is supreme, but in his supremacy, we see that he is also set apart, sanctified, holy. Verse 35 says, And the angels answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. It's of utmost importance that Jesus was born of a virgin. First, because the Bible states it as clear fact doesn't apologize for it, doesn't dance around it. It states it as absolute, absolute eternal truth. And if the Bible can't be trusted in every area, it is fundamentally flawed and we can't trust any of it. 
but we can trust the word of God. He preserves what he promises. Yet Luke makes it very clear this is the case. But secondly, we also see the reason that it's so important that, that he was born of a virgin is the fact that um, it made possible Jesus' true humanity without inherited sin. Every other human has been born with a sinful nature passed down from Adam, but with Jesus, that line is for the first time interrupted. He doesn't come in the conventional way. He is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. It breaks and interrupts the line of sinful nature um, that was inherent to every other human being, ourselves included. But thirdly, we also see this, that the incarnation sets Jesus apart in that it made possible the uniting of full deity and full humanity in one person. Had Jesus just ascended from heaven as a fully grown man, his humanity would have rightfully been in question. Had Jesus been born of a mother and a human mother and father, his deity would rightfully have been in question. But he was conceived, again, through a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit, uniting together in his one person, man and God. And we also see a fourth reason that is so important, and that is what Jacob hinted at last week or, or spoke of last week, is that salvation ultimately must come from the Lord. Um, God's salvation can't be a human idea. It is God's idea through and through, 100%. Hebrews 12.1 says that he is the author and perfecter or the completer of our faith. From beginning to end, it is the work and the will of God to bring about salvation to his people. And this is something that we can revel in. And we can know this because Jesus was not God's cosmic plan B. <laughs> Galatians 4, 4 and 5 tells us, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus was set apart to be slain from all eternity, that all who believe in him might be set aside as holy to the Lord for all eternity. But as we kind of move to the end of our outline, the fourth place that we need to look is outside of the Trinity. Um, not, that's, not, that's not heretical, uh, but we need to consider one other person. That is a character of Mary. Mary um, as I've said, it's not been my goal to, to give an entire treatise of the Trinity, um, and Mary is, is separate from that. Um, but I believe that we need to very closely consider who Mary was and how she responds in this incredible way. None of this, again, was Mary's idea. It was God's idea through and through. Again, what human being could imagine the fullness of the Godhead to work in her in such a miraculous way? It's beyond human thought. Mary was just a virgin from Nazareth, um, and she was engaged to a man named Joseph. In fact, with the way that it phrases it in verse 27, her, her name almost seems as like an afterthought. But she was never an afterthought to God. God had been preparing her from all eternity to be the one who would carry his son. He had orchestrated every event in her life to lead her to this point. And she responds in a way that is faithful and obedient. There's a lot about Mary that we're not told, a whole lot that we're not told. Um, and that's because she's not the central so, um, figure of the story, and she understood that. Yet we see here, and what we are told, is points both to her humble origin and her humble obedience. We are told that she was troubled when the angel appeared to her. 
um, was confused by the announcement he made. And she says, how, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Um, valid question, right? Um, this is the first time this has ever happened in history and the only time it's happened. Valid question. Uh, how? And yet she obviously was pure in heart when she said this because unlike Zechariah who questioned the conception of John by Elizabeth, his wife, um, Mary doesn't get the mute button hit on her. Um, she is met with grace once again and an explanation, albeit an, a very extraordinary explanation. The power and presence of God is going to come upon you. This is how it's going to happen. Still not exactly satisfying because, again, when did that ever happen before and when has it ever happened since? But Mary responds. Mary responds, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. What a response of faith and trust. And while some, on some levels, carrying and giving birth to the Son of God might seem like the opportunity of a lifetime, there was a hard road ahead of, of Mary. And just like all the Old Testament figures that she probably grew up learning about, Mary would have to entrust her well-being to God if she was going to be obedient in this. She risked being both divorced by Joseph and disowned by her family. She risked being called horrible names at best and stoned to death at worst. Mary, though, was obedient. Humbly, she came in her origin, and humbly she responded in obedience to God's word. And all for something that really made no sense to human understanding. Um, human reason couldn't make sense of this. And it was almost certainly an interruption to the plans that she had for her life. Almost certainly an interruption. She didn't think, you know what, I bet I see an angel tomorrow and I'm going to have this happen. It interrupted her plans, and yet she yielded to the will of God. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Mary's humility shows us that she knew she wasn't the main character. She wasn't the main character in the story, but it shows also that she accepted the part that she was to play. She humbly accepted the Lord's plan because she hopefully anticipated the Lord's provision. Luke 145 tells us that Mary goes to see her cousin Elizabeth, and Elizabeth in the Spirit says, And blessed is she, speaking of Mary, who believes that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Even though she couldn't possibly have made sense of it all, Mary trusted that the Lord would be with her. He would accomplish what he said he would. He would take care of her. But also, looking beyond herself, she trusted the Lord would accomplish what he said he would do for his people, that he would bring about salvation for them. The hope Mary found in the word of the Lord outweighed and overpowered the hurt that she could have from the world. It was greater. She had a hope in the promise of the Lord. We see the humility we see the hope of this virgin from Nazareth, betrothed to a son, descendant of David, who would bear the Savior of the world. Like Abram, she believed the Lord, though she couldn't see it or understand it. So as we close, what, what should we take away from this for our lives? We, we've considered the Trinity. We've considered a very specific, very unique 
girl and her circumstances. What do we take away from this today? Well, I have a few quick things I want us to, to consider as we close. First, and this is not, uh, I did not get these in time to the people in the back, so this won't be up on the screen, um, but that's my fault, not theirs. So I thought I should say that. First of all, the triune God is at work in your life to bring glory to himself. And he will do that in one of two ways, either through our repentance and our faith or through his wrath that will be poured out on us one day. Every human being, though, will be one who brings glory to God in one way or another. And he is at work to accomplish that for himself. Let it be through repentance and faith in your life. Number two, God isn't constrained to human convention or understanding, and he can rewrite the script however he desires. And he does this for his glory and for our good. Again, whenever before and whenever since has a virgin given birth, when could such a thing happen that the Savior of the world would come through a virgin? And yet this is what God did. It went beyond human understanding. It went beyond human convention. But God does this, and he's able to do it in your life as well. Things that may not make sense to you right now is God at work. Things that won't make sense in the good that he brings to you is God at work for your good and for his glory. Trust that. Thirdly, obeying God's word doesn't require you to understand it, only to trust it. Look to God's word and believe that it is truly what is best for you and for all of us. Trust that that is true even when you do not understand it. God will, pre- he will preserve what he promises every time. Fourthly, God's favor in salvation and his faithfulness in the past should motivate your faith for the present and for the future. Our faith should be motivated by God's faithfulness and his favor. We can see these examples, including Mary, and see that God is always faithful to those who he has shown favor through his son. You can trust that the Lord is with you and let the faith and trust motivate you to trust him in what you don't see for the present and for the future. Fifthly, if you have received God's favor in Christ, the Bible says that you truly have need of nothing else. Nothing else. That's a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around, I think. But we can see this in places like Romans chapter 8, verse 32, when it says that he who did not spare his only son but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously give us all things? There is no need that God is not unaware of in your life. He has provided for the greatest one. You can trust him in every other one. Matthew 6, 25 says, Don't seek the things of the world, the ones that don't know God, the ones they chase after, but seek First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all those things that you need will be added unto you. Philippians 3, 7 through 11, Paul says, I consider everything else of the world that I had gained or ever could gain as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. The truth is everything that we need in this life outside of God himself will pass away. It will. It's only a temporary thing. But Christ He will last forever. And we have Christ. We truly have all that we could ever need. This life's coming to an end at one point or not. Don't be foolish, but don't be fearful. Don't be fearful. The Lord sees you and knows your needs. And he has provided for the greatest one you could ever have. He has provided his son. 
But lastly, our takeaway, God's plan for your life, it will often involve hardship and suffering and things that you don't understand. But in that hardship, in that suffering, in that lack of understanding, his plan will be better than anything you could dream up for yourself. It will be better, either in this life or in the life to come. And our hearts should be set on the one that is to come. Charles Spurgeon said that we should cling very loosely to the things of this world, but with a death grip on the things of eternal life. So, if you've never repented of your sin and trusted in the Lord for eternal life, there's good news. Today is the day of salvation. It is near to you. Christ beckons you to come to him. But if you have believed in Christ today, today is another day to look to his unmerited favor and faithfulness, to be filled with his unwavering presence and power, and to rest in his unrivaled supremacy and sanctity. He loves you and has a plan for your life. The triune God is at work in your life for his glory and for your good. Trust in that and trust that he always preserves that which he promises. Let's pray. Father, you are the hope of the world and you are actively at work in your creation and the lives of each of us here gathered today. God, you're at work for your glory and for our good as the triune God of the universe, the one who is greater than our greatest thoughts of you and yet who descended to live among us. What a marvelous thing to consider at this time of Advent. God, help us to place ourselves in the story to cling to your favor, your faithfulness, to know that your presence and power are with us and will never abandon us, God, and that the supremacy and sanctity of Christ is all that we need to set our hope on. Lord, as this Sunday of hope, we consider these things, God, help us to find that hope in you. Regardless of our situation, God, let us look to you knowing that you are sufficient and that you are faithful. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. Praise things in your name. Amen.